Welcome back to Manifest Destiny, the podcast where two old friends discuss moments in U.S. history. Old times. Old times, new times, times from the olden times that pertain to the new We're times. We're talking about present times. The as times I said, as I'm trying to make happen, it's a millennial look right. at the American millennium. I know, you got to keep this brand consistent. I think This it, is your tagline. I think it's going to grow. I'm here just to support. It's a little wordy, but I think that. I think we'll it's going to find its audience. We won't help edit us, that. Help us edit. Help us edit. edit My name's Rebecca. My name's Blair. And we're your guides on this frenetic and strange journey through the past. Um, the, the, pa- the best kind of past there is, which yeah. is the recent American past. <laughs> yes. So come, come sit a while. Um, pull I up a chair. Pull up a chair because this episode is going to start kind of heavy. Um, I'm going to go first because we are talking about the case of Emmett Till. Um, so obviously this is a little bit of a heavier subject matter. And before I start, I think any podcast that Rebecca or I do should have a huge fucking disclaimer, disclaimer on it saying I'm an extremely privileged white girl. Yes. And like, I'm not claiming this story as my own. And no. I really am nervous about not doing a good job with it. But I think... But I also think that, like, if one more person knows about Ed- Emmett Till because of this podcast or, like, learns one detail about his life, then, like, I'm doing everything. Also, it's more I'm egregious as two privileged white women just to only talk about white moments in history. Like, it is absolutely yeah. our responsibility oh. to learn about this stuff more so than anybody else, I would say. I agree. And even though that this is such a famous thing like the death of Emmett Till I learned so much like researching for this so, and like I feel like there's so many like little details and things that have come out I since. mean I will be completely honest and say that this is something that I have learned about in the last two years of my life really didn't learn anything about it in school I don't remember really? learning about it in well class. Rebecca that was your feeling <laughs> did you <laughs> learn about it I don't kidding. think so no I mean it was definitely in our U.S. history book which is by the way sitting next to yes. us in Rebecca's apartment so we will cross-reference and get back to you in the next episode, if it is in I'm there. actually going to uh, yeah. just Okay, Re- Rebecca can check while we talk. Or while, while I'm forgetful and a bad student or this textbook is garbage. Spoiler alert, it's the first one. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just want to, oh my God, before I start, oh my God, the CD. No, there's a CD-ROM. Rebecca's looking at our old APS book. But yeah, so anyway, I just want to go ahead and start by saying this is coming from an extremely humble place of like learning, so... I really don't want to get the details wrong, but I'm sure I will. Um, and it's a horrific situation that, you know, when history's wrong, it repeats itself over and over and over again, sure and it's does. never gonna ch- it's never gonna change until we talk about it. So, um, I am talking about the. I just want to say I don't see Till Emmett. Go go to the civil rights chapter. I bet. Do you my, remember which it is? What it's like sixteen crazy Blair's got a photographic memory and it's not a no it might be 18 it's definitely an even oh no reconstruction 17 okay anyway so basically I'm gonna go ahead and tell you about Emmett Till he was born July 25th on 1941 he was a little baby little baby Leo which also comes into the story because he loved to make his friends laugh and he was kind of like a Leo's entertainers oh yeah they're the lion they have to be a center of attention and they are like so proud of themselves and other people and everyone they keep in their orbit my mom's a leo they're super fun oh my god your mom is such a leo (laughs) 
<laughs> Rebecca's mom's body is snatched. <laughs> she doesn't let you forget it. That's the that's the Leo in her. <laughs> She's always like, yeah, I'm 65 years old and I look better naked than you ever have, Flair. She snaps. <laughs> she eats only donuts. And no other nutrition. I don't really want to talk about your family's metabolism right now because I'm fragile. Like I, I it pisses me off. But everyone finds it gross, myself included. So anyway, Emmett Till was born um, to his mother Mamie, and she was actually born in Tallahatchie. Tallahatchie County in Mississippi, where the average income per white household was $690, which is about $7,000 in 2016. And for black families, it was $462, which is less than $5,000 in 2016. So um, this is basically the deep Mississippi Delta. And the important thing to note about this is this is an impoverished area for not just black people, but white people too. And those are the areas in America where people really dig into mm-hmm. white privilege and race because they are literally and racism because they're like, at sure. least I'm not black. Like at least I have this going for me, even though I'm yeah. also dirt fucking poor. And I live on the yeah. Mississippi Delta and I don't even own the land I'm farming. Um, so just a little bit about the community where Mamie was from, where she sent her son to, um, it's mostly sharecroppers, um, the black community, and they'd essentially been disenfranchised and excluded from voting from the political system. And um, it was a white-dominated legislature, and they were basically unable to vote, too. Like, there was a lot of gerrymandering, really hard to register. Um, and there was a, obviously a lot of racial segregation. This is, like, the epitome of the Jim Crow South, and it's, like, just definitely worth noting how impoverished it is in general because um it's just fucking awful (laughs) so basically it's a it's so when she when mamie was two years old her family moved to argo illinois so what's really great about this is that it also ties in the great migration um which was the mass mass exodus of african americans in the south and the whole black community kind of leaving because things were so unequal and under the law so fucked up literally had no opportunity to advance themselves and were treated terribly as we know know um and they basically huge swaths of them moved you know up to new york up to chicago um you know northern cities where there was you know more factory work there was more unskilled labor other than farming like you could at least work in a fucking factory and get to punch out (laughs) your back doesn't hurt all day the mississippi migration to fargo illinois was so significant that it was called like little mississippi oh wow and um so mamie and its mother was actually a host to families that were migrating from the South. Like, so she was really still stayed in touch with this early community. But it also just shows, like, she was a good fucking person that would, like, take people into her home. So basically they were, there's a lack of opportunity violence in the South. So Northern people are moving. So basically she, Emmett was mostly raised by Mamie and his grandmother on his maternal side. His dad was super violent. I won't go into him too much. Like, I don't even want to, like give him any power but um it's important to note for his character he was he ended up being executed for murder and he had a really terrible contentious relationship with his mother he would like show up there it was this was before restraining orders really like it was like a judge would just be like you Emma's stay dad. away from her yeah. and it's dad yeah. but apparently at the age of 11 he came over threatening Mamie um, Emmett's mom and Emmett came out with a knife at the age of 11 wow. and was like get out of here and never come back Ugh. like he was like so protective of his Believe. mom Leo like stood his ground you're learning she's learning but so this is just how strong the connection between his mom and Emmett are like they're they're a true like duo they looked out for each other and they were also like she had him pretty young and they were you know like very 
you yeah. know, just like a super close single mom family, which I feel like is nothing. <laughs> There's nothing comparable to that. So anyway, Emmett contracted polio when he was six and he had a... I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. And he had... So it left him with a persistent stutter for mm-hmm. the rest of his life. So he had trouble saying his B's. Um, his mom remarried and then they got divorced again. Um, but just a couple things about him. He was described as a happy kid, loved to be like the class clown kind of, like loved to play with his cousins. They would play pranks on each other. There was like one little anecdote about how like one of his cousins was sleeping in the car. They would like put underwear on his head, like just like kid stuff because he was fucking 14. (laughs) And, you know, he loved to be the center of attention. And his mom was like, you know, he was like, would always help me out with the dishes when I was tired. Like just by all accounts, a very sweet kid. Um, So he's coming from suburban Chicago in 1955, which is a very fucking different place than yes. Mississippi in 1955. Um, so he went down there to visit his maternal family and was staying with his cousins and stuff. In Mississippi. In Mississippi. And so this is the summer of 1955. It's his summer break from school, and this is before his ninth grade yeah. year. So okay. he's literally not even in high school yet. That's okay. how young he is. So before he left, his mother cautioned him um, that he was, you know, visiting a completely different world in Mississippi and he should know how to behave in front of whites in the South and just keep your nose clean. Don't do anything like it's a fucked up place down there. Like, that's Uh, why I left. Which mothers still have to do. I know. Mothers still have to do this to every black boy under like over the age of 10 every day. So fucked. Um, so anyway, he arrives in Money, Mississippi in August, um, and he and his cousin are skipping church and, um, where his great uncle was preaching and joined some local boys. They went to Bryant's grocery store and meat market to buy candy, literally candy. Like they weren't buying like fucking firecrackers cigarettes cigarettes, like cigarettes yeah candy. So, and the children, yeah. So the, the local kids he was hanging out with were all the children of sharecroppers that had been picking cotton all day yeah which is fucking crazy to think that 1955 was not that long ago and people were picking cotton all day like in some alternate universe it's i mean the fact that the civil rights movement was in the 60s fucks my head up i know i know like our parents have you ever read educated no oh my god you need to tara westover Uh, totally aside but there's this book called educated by tara westover and she grew up with like crazy mormon parents who didn't teach her anything about the past and she was homeschooled and she got to college and like was learning about the fucking civil war for the first time and then she's like yeah and then like i thought i was literally reading it wrong when they were like oh yeah and then the 1960s for the civil rights movement she's like so what happened for the hundred years fucking shit like this yeah, happened for a hundred years like that's right how fucked now. up it was yeah. if you were mormon living in like a doomsday cult which she was you would literally be like what the fuck was america doing for a hundred years i mean truly so crazy um so anyway so they skip church they're just you know kids messing around they go to get um i mean who hasn't blown off church to get some candy from a store that's what that's <laughs> the doctrine jesus preached yeah i mean if you're even expected to go to church you're already on a higher spiritual plane than most people in connecticut because we we are not church goers we're heathens but so anyway so he heads to the bryant grocery store and it's owned by 21 year old joy bryant and 24 year old her husband roy um and basically the next moments that happen are so contested like literally no one really knows what happened it was so long ago obviously emmett's side of the story is not known and 
this woman has changed her story so many fucking times. She's a, of course, because she's a liar. Well, she's a she's a fucking liar. But so literally, she said that he like grabbed his lace. She's like, "What you doing, lady? Like, I've seen a white girl before." Like, saying all of this crazy stuff. Um, and oh, sorry, Carolyn Bryant. I is Joy Bryant the name of a store? Lane Bryant. Okay, sorry. It's Carolyn. I don't know why. In my mind, her name is Joy, but her name is Carolyn, and she fucking sucked. <laughs> so she's married to the proprietor, and. Again, this is just very contentious. Was he in the store at the time? He No, so he goes in the store and the kids are still across the street okay. seeing it outside. They yeah. don't really know what went down inside. But she says that he like grabbed her, was like touching her, being like, oh, I know. Like I've seen white ladies before, like just random cat, like cat calling, just stuff yeah. like that. And then some people say he wolf whistled at her. And then this is the saddest fucking part. Remember, because he had polio, he had a stutter. Yeah. And his mom said that sometimes when he he would, like, whistle when he said the B word. So yeah. he could have been trying to ask her for, like, bread or something. Yeah. Like, literally. Ugh, that uh. just one detail got to me because truly no one knows. Like, no one knows his account. I, mean, um, I would hazard a guess and say he did none of the above and probably just innocuously tried to ask something and this woman was just racist. I mean, for what it's worth, in 2008, in an interview, she said that he never grabbed my waist and he never uttered obscenities. Well, good for her for confessing that in 2008. I mean, 2008. do you think that was like a fucking deathbed thing? Like, do you think she was just like, I know I'm going to hell, like, maybe I could just like lighten the load just a little? like a Hail Mary? I mean, literally, I can't think of another reason you would confess to, like, being the direct reason for a person being lynched by a mob. Yeah, I mean. In the uh, year 2000. I think that's pretty unforgivable. Like, literally 53 years later, she admitted it. Oof. So, anyway, this is kind of the talk of the town that this black kid had been talking to a white woman or even looking at a white woman like again yeah. it could have literally just been a look and then when they were outside the store people said including the black boy said they heard him whistling but they were like he might have just been whistling at like the game of checkers we were playing like we literally don't really know like he like she might have perceived it as I mean, me, him whistling if at he me. did catcall whistle you know yeah it's like it was a 14 year old boy he, and he he's a 14-year-old boy that looks like a 14-year-old boy. Like, he like, is 5'3". He's 150 pounds. He's, like, a little chubby. Like, he does not in no way look like any kind of threat to this woman. Not that anything could have ever, should have ever made her pause or make this a bigger deal than it was. But even if we're going to, like, you know, assume this cultural lens when talking about the moments in the past, like... Yes. A even wolf if, whistle is not enough. Even if we were white ladies in Mississippi right. in 1955 podcasting about this, I right. would still be like, this bitch yeah. is a fucking... Like idiot concocted something out of like her own racial fears exactly like psycho so a few nights after the incident um brian's husband roy roy bryant and his half brother jw millam um armed and they showed up at till's great uncle's house and abducted the boy they took him away beat him and mutilated him severely before shooting him in the head and sinking his body in the tallahatchie tallahatchie river um sorry so he definitely suffered a lot. I don't want to go into the gory Ugh. details of it, but he was alive for a long time before they shot him in the head. So, um, and the body wasn't discovered for three days. So it was just floating in the river. No one really knew what happened to him. So it's just so crazy. So Mamie Till Bradley, um, she comes down there, obviously, gets the body back to Chicago, um, and she insists on an open casket. And this is kind of a turning point in American history. 
Dave Chappelle has a really good comedy special that came out in the last like yes. year or two where he talks about Emmett Till's mom and he's like Emmett Till's mom was a fucking gangster like yeah. she was like no you can see what you did to my son like come take a look so they had this huge open casket funeral that was attended by thousands of people um, and people were out of their mind shocked by how mutilated and bloated Ugh. this body was it'd been in the river for three days like I don't want to dwell on like the unpleasant details but but what a badass for his mom to be like you literally yeah, have no, to you look fucking at this deal like, and and truly like I always knew that she oh are you uncomfortable good I always knew that she said that but it really didn't hit me until I was like reading about how close they were and how she was Ugh. like he was so protective of her and she was a single mom like the whole thing makes me to lose a child like that let alone to lose a child in like a hate crime i just can't even fucking imagine so um and this child that's been a protector of a woman that was a a victim of male violence mm -hmm. then being falsely accused of yes committing a similar crime so but she was literally like fuck you i'm not closing this casket like reporters should come to this funeral everyone should come to this funeral like black leaders should come to this funeral like she was like calling upon the community to be like my son is fucking dead wow so her decision to keep it open casket resulted in tons of photos which you can still see wow and they're really disturbing um trigger warning but they Focused attention not only on the racism and barbarism of of lynching, but also on um, kind of the limitations of fucking democracy that these people Mm -hmm. were. It took so long to apprehend them. Yeah, what happened to them? We're getting to that. um, But just before I do, just focus on Emmett. Like tens of thousands of um, attended the funeral and images of his body were published in all these magazines and newspapers. And... It was so shocking to black people, but it was also so fucking shocking to white liberal people that were living in this bubble. Like, I can't even... Like, it was very similar to, like, how George Floyd's murder felt or Ahmaud Arbery's murder felt, where people were just like, I can't... Is this fucking going on? Like, this is crazy. It created so much black and white support and sympathy that, you know, the U.S. was under intense scrutiny. Mississippi was under intense scrutiny. Like, people were like, what the fuck is going on in Mississippi that these people are, like, awaiting trial right now? What year was this again? 1955. Okay. Um, so, it's not just black people that are upset by this. Obviously, it's all these liberal white people or just northern white people who are not as racist as these fucking people being like, this, I've never seen the face of Jim Crow. Like, this is awful. And the fact that he was from Chicago visiting and was like, I really want to get to know my roots. Yeah. Like, awful. So, in September of 1955, an all-white jury found Brian and Willem not guilty. Are you kidding me? Of Till's kidnapping and murder. No. And and this is the most fucked up part. So, apparently, I had to just Google this, but there's something called double jeopardy, oh, where yeah. you can't be prosecuted yep. for the same crime twice. Yep. Rebecca is. <laughs> her ears are going jeopardy. up. Yes, yeah, so you can't be prosecuted it's for essentially the same crime twice. So, after they got off, literally months later, barely, and like, didn't really have a trial, all-white jury... Which, even if it's an all-white jury, like, what the fuck? Like, how? Do, how? Where was the trial held? Mississippi, but, like, yeah. still. Well, there you go. I mean, just, I think maybe I'm naive to think that there would be some human decency no. in, like, a Mississippi. Not in the 50s in Mississippi. I mean, whatever. So, it's so fucked up and sad. Um, so, because of double jeopardy, they couldn't get prosecuted again for the same thing. So, in a 1956 interview, less than a year later, with Look Magazine, they brag about it basically they're like yeah we killed him um we were just protecting our town protecting our woman oh my god etc so that is the super fucked up story of emmett till so his murder is seen as a catalyst for the next phase of the civil rights movement which didn't even 
officially kick off until December 1955 when Rosa Parks yeah. started the Montgomery bus boycott. Yeah. So this is all pre-civil rights, but this is very much seen as like the kindle to the fire yeah, that yeah. started civil rights because this was so on people's consciousness and like people were shocked by the brutality of it. And even the idea that because he was from Chicago, he didn't know you couldn't talk to a white lady in any sense. Like, I mean, the whole thing is so fucked up and crazy and I ultimately, I feel awful and sorry, I do laugh when I'm uncomfortable and yes, you do. I've been doing sh- that for you. I sure do. And I am, you know, humor is my but first But I mean, this is, this is like, <laughs> but yeah, truly... so I don't want to sound like I'm making light of it, but it is, it just, it makes me But crazy. I think for two white women to sit here and dwell with the discomfort of being of a cast of people that have typically yeah. led to the incarceration of innocent black men to sit with that and feel that discomfort and have your awkward, uncomfortable laughter. Like it is our responsibility i feel like to be the ones confronting this because we are the perpetrators of this problem and on that note please arrest the cops that killed brianna taylor yeah fucking please. arrest the cops that killed brianna taylor i cannot live in this like i cannot live in this world so i mean this just reminds me of the martin luther king quote that i don't want to get wrong but when he says you know the arc the arc of moral justice is is long like the history of it is long but it bends towards justice and it's just so true it's like i think we're just bending we're in a fucking very fucked up backward time but like i just think that one of the big themes of this podcast for me is seeing like america is a super fucked up crazy place but like it's always had these terrible issues. It's always had these yeah. setbacks. It's always had these fucking things to confront that we like owned these slaves for hundreds of created. Yeah, all these institutions we've created, how we perpetuate them, how we benefit from them. And I don't know. I mean, it just really stuck with me that like I was just having this crazy like guilt thought on the way over here, just being like, I do want to tell this story and I like think it's important for people to hear, but like can I even say I'm approaching this with empathy when like we've all benefited from like yeah. the system and like like i like we're able to like talk about the fun things in american history and the things we love and like all this stuff because like it's a country that like s- speaks for us and exists for us and like that's not true of like so many millions of people that fucking live here yeah i mean i think this is again the thing we are responsible for grappling with is the benefit that we continue People don't want to talk about this at all. Like, we continue as white people to benefit from the institutional racism of black Americans. And we can look at a story like Well, I want to talk. I'm talking about it right now. Yeah, I know. I mean, but, like, I think in general, it's something that people are very uncomfortable with and feel that it is either not their place or it's a burden. Well, it's also, I mean, I I read White Fragility a couple months ago, and I was literally like... What is it? Like, I read White Fragility, and then right after I read How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, and I was like, you know, I just kind of preferred White Fragility. I feel like there was a lot more, like, applicable tools for me personally. And then I was like, how fucked up is it that I'm identifying with this book written by a white woman directly alongside a woman, a book written by a black man who has literally been receiving this? Like, of course it's angry, or, like, of course it's, like, like, what the fuck? Who in the, the wake do I think of I the protest, I literally was had a drinking game for every time a white ally was like, "So I'm reading White Fragility." <laughs> like, I mean, literally, I mean, White Fragility is important to it read. Like, important. I'm not trying like, to like. No, we should but, like, all read it. It did shake me a lot. Like, because like, the fact that that is the touchstone for most people to like find their way into this conversation, and then the reaction you're exactly describing. I, you know, I've been trying to read more Tennessee Coates, and like that, this isn't for me. 
I don't have a way into this because this is not my experience. Like, grappling with that discomfort, like, dealing and with... And it's also, like, black people wake up every day and they're having the white experience. Literally. Like, they're literally, like, have to... They have to have the experience that we're having, whether yep. we want to or not. We should have to have their experience, whether we want to or not. But the reason exactly. I brought up... The reason I brought up white fragility is because she has this thing that's, like, white people have this idea that if, like, people are, like, you're you know, you're benefiting from racism. They're like, no, my life has been really hard. It's like, your life has been hard. Like, everyone's yeah. life is hard. But yeah. your life wasn't hard because of the color of your skin. Right. Like, it was hard. Like, it's like you didn't have all these fucking crazy ass. You had choices. And you could freely travel to Mississippi without getting fucking lynched. Like, it's just so crazy and so disturbing that, like, as shocking as we found it, as shocking as it is for me to read these details of, like, how gross and awful the lynching was, how terribly justice was executed it's I mean, like all what they have changed. to do is look back like the only thing that's changed is that there's fucking cameras i say look back like there's stuff happening every day that we don't that doesn't have media attention on it i mean we are lucky that we have cameras to document some of the things that do get documented and you wonder over the years how many injustices have been swept under the rug i was just watching netflix's unsolved mysteries thing and they is that a new unsolved mysteries or is it just old episodes no it's a new reboot of the oh, original series. Know. Okay, yeah. wow. And there's six, and one of them deals with the murder of a black man who, unfortunately, his name escapes me right now because there are just too many. And it's fucked that we are still living in a society where this many black men are being killed and forgotten about. Well, it's crazy that that's, that is the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries. It's like, okay, we care about black people now. Yes. Literally, Unsolved Mysteries, I was obsessed with that show when I was a yes. kid, and it's just white, white women people, whose husbands yeah. fucking kill mm-hmm. them. Like, it's not a hard mystery to solve. No. No, I just, I don't know. It's, it's been, I think, the biggest reckoning of my adulthood is how little, you know, I've always considered myself somebody who's not racist, but the idea of being anti-racist is obviously something that I think has come into our vernacular fairly recently. And that figuring out, like, how to be a better white person without patronizing people, without making it feel like this quest is your own and you have to be, it's got to be like this communal effort to dismantle these things. And, you know, we just talked about in the previous episode, Japanese internment and the addition, the idea of reparations. And if this country is really like so unwilling to give individual reparations for the systematic crimes committed against black people, like why not funnel money into systems that will benefit black people? Why do we continue? But it's also like what, monetary amount there is no there is no monetary amount that would compensate them the idea of there's no monetary amount therefore we can't do it fucks me up it's like do fucking something like i don't care if it's not enough it's more than nothing do something like there's gotta be what i mean i can think of like injecting you know defunding the police and putting that money into school systems that are in predominantly black neighborhoods like yeah that's a start yeah. We can use that as actionable item number one. Like, there are so many things like that that are infrastructurally set up to support white people that if we take a hard look at those things and reallocate resources to be more equitable, like, why isn't that in the name of reparations? Like, why can't we make a concentrated effort to put our energy towards that? We're all sitting here asking how we can benefit people. Like, is that not a way to make systems slightly more equal? I don't think you're ever going to make them completely equal because I think this country does have a deeply entrenched racist undertone. I mean, I see, I live in a 
wealthy town in Connecticut and the racism that I have seen on a daily basis on a small level, on a macro level, is shocking. It's every day. I mean, there are two people in my little town of 500 people that drive around with Confederate flags in Connecticut. What the fuck? Yep. I had my car vandalized during the first election because I had a bumper sticker on my car that said, Love Trump's Hate. Not Hillary Clinton, not anything. And some guy drew with a Sharpie all over the back of my car and then took black electrical tape and taped the whole back of my car shut. It's fucked up. That's fucked up and I didn't know that. But we maybe shouldn't talk about the racism you've experienced. No, I mean, no, but I'm (laughs) saying as the most privileged person, like in a very privileged pocket, we're still dealing with this. And again, you you couldn't find a more privileged person than Rebecca. And the fact that you're experiencing these things is crazy to me. I mean, yeah. And it's just, it's so different because I just think I've been so disheartened lately seeing all of this, like, dissent and protest trickle out. And I'm like, okay, like, the thing is, it's like, protests are great, and I love protests. And, like, I want to talk about the protest history of this nation for sure. Like, we fucking started out as a protest. We were just protesting about our taxes. Like, that's the fundamental cornerstone of our democracy. Like, I am all for dissent, but it just, if it's not a policy... It like things don't stay on the mind as well. Like it just yeah. like it just disturbs me that I feel like things are kind of moving on from it. And I guess the only thing you can do is vote. Yeah, but I'm so also tired of that. That like we our attention and our energy peters out. And we all reach a point where we're like, well, the best we can do is vote at this point. And yeah, I think maybe we should pivot. <laughs> I mean, I was gonna say I think maybe we should pivot, but I also feel like we should continue to talk about this and let this episode be what it is, and we can. I agree. I don't think we should try to talk. I don't about think there is else. a pivot from this, and I think it is important as as I said, as two people that are, I think, probably feeling. I, I can speak for myself, and you can speak for yours, but I feel very uncomfortable with no, what I've <laughs> what I've said so far. And I know. I'm always feeling like every reaction I have and every thought I say, even if it's something that I've really articulated and thought about is awkward and wrong and I think this is going to be like again like black people are uncomfortable doing basic things in this country like if we're uncomfortable having conversations about race like but then I we also, deserve it exactly we totally deserve it times 10 billion but I also think that like it's crazy to think how much the needle can be moved by public opinion and like I do yeah. think like I do in my most optimistic moments like really feel hope like when I think about the fact that Gay marriage was right. literally not even something that you could Crazy. talk about at a dinner table when I was a kid growing up Crazy. and living in like the most liberal state in the world. And like truly it was like not a dinner table conversation. Now it's the most like universally right. accepted thing. And like, I don't know any educated person that would be against gay marriage at this point in time. So it just, it does make me feel like if there's momentum, there could be something happening. I mean, I think as white people, education and re-education is a huge thing. Like, talking about moments that we didn't necessarily learn in history too deeply. But also how we learn them is so interesting. Like, I was reading um, in Trevor Noah's book, he talks a lot about how they educate people in Germany about yep. the Holocaust. Like, literally, when you are five years old, yep. they will give you, like, a little baby version of, like, you did something fucked up. Yep. Like, and then, like... And then, like, the middle school version of something else and the high school version. And it's, like, all of Germany is an apology. Like, I just was there a couple years ago, and I was literally like, yeah, these people fucking, like, some of them get it My friend did my master's was German, and she was, like, literally my, both my grandfathers were Nazis, and this is something we literally all carry and have to deal with every day. And, yeah, and it's something they carry and deal with every day. It's not something I'm carrying or dealing with every day. Slave, you know, holding background. Like, my family certainly, I'm, I'm quite certain... 
had yeah, slaves. I don't have the stats on my family. I'm sure but... your family did too. And like we don't carry that the same way the Germans carry their guilt about being but Nazis. But it's part of it that it's so much more recent. But but again, but so anyway. But so is the civil rights. I mean, well, the civil rights no, no, movement no. is more recent. Well, than that's what's so interesting because in the book he talks about like not that how his not what history is taught because I think we are taught about the terrible fact like we learn about slavery, but then the way it's presented to us, it's like Germany is like no, this is something you carry and something you yep. live with every day for the rest yep. of your life. And in America, it's like, we la, had la, la, we la, had slavery, yeah. we had racism, it was awful. There was this person called Rosa Parks. And then there was this person called Martin Luther King. Yep. And now and everything's fine and he fixed yep. it. Like, Thank that you, is, Martin. And it like, is, like, such a crazy, like, one, when I heard that, when I read that in the book, I was literally, like, it really snapped into place for me that that is, like, the cornerstone of how it's taught in American schools is being, Truly. like, there's just this huge tide turning in the 60s and now we're not racist anymore. And, I like, mean, even in our high school, which was, again, a very liberal space, we, instead of having Martin Luther King Day off, would have lectures and seminars and workshops and they were, I mean, that's, they were great. that's great. It's better than doing nothing. But I don't ever recall those conversations being about, like, what I personally was doing to be anti-racist totally. and more of an ally. One of the things they did was we just watched the movie Crash yes. at the school. Yes, and Crash, in retrospect, is a very problematic <laughs> it's movie. It's a very so. problematic film. Yeah, I remember that very clearly. That was watching crazy. Crash in the auditorium. Yeah, that was wild. But yeah, I but mean, that was our solution, our school solution to racism. And again, this is a school that I think most people would identify as like a very progressive liberal institution, and a place that most people would identify as like you know you're not getting Martin Luther King Day off. You are no. using this space to talk about racism, and, and that's a big backpack for a lot of people. Like yeah. wow, these young women are getting a first hand lesson for the whole day on civil rights instead of just having the day off. And yet, like even that, which was so well intentioned, like I don't. I think the conversations we're having now, and I think probably the school is having now, are much different than the conversations we were having in 2008. I agree, but it's also like I am, at the end of the day, having this conversation with you, (laughs) my fellow white person. Right. Right. But I mean, again, like, I don't think it really necessarily matters who and how you're having these conversations. It's more like the conversations have to keep happening. And just because, you know, we are in August and everyone's feeling fatigued by all of the millions of garbage things that are happening in the world right now like I do feel like the momentum is waning for this cause and like the more conversations we continue to have even if they are rambling incoherent and uncomfortable and probably like I probably could have been canceled 18 times already this episode I mean it's yeah I mean, but I will never be the person to be like, I'm afraid to speak right. out because I don't want to get canceled. I would rather be wrong and have somebody tell me that and engage somebody in a conversation about how I can do better than not speak and risk just being ignorant. Like, I think the only time your ignorance, the deep-seated ignorance is corrected is when you can engage it with the world. And if that means we're going to be canceled, I'd rather be canceled for this and then learn something about how to do better totally. than much else. But I don't think that it's possible to be canceled when you're coming from a place of humility and just be like, yeah, I'm fucking wrong. I've been taught wrong things. Yeah. I've internalized wrong things my entire life. Like, I don't know. I mean, I think these are. this is one of these episodes where – I think we both would really love to hear from you, the listeners, as to what you feel, how you feel, what you would like us to do better, what you feel white people should do better when talking about race. Like, I think this is one of these conversations where we'll obviously have follow-ups with other IDs that deal with this situation, because clearly this is not the only incident in which we have wrongfully lynched a black man in this country. Like, this will be a recurring theme of this podcast, but I think, like, the important thing is that, obviously, as Blair said, we are two very white privileged women and to have the dialogue be with you either as white people or as black people like talk to us tell us yeah how you feel 
Yeah, I actually like How, just stopped talking for so long because I was just listening, being like, it feels good to listen. Like, I want to yeah. fucking hear someone that knows more than me right. about this. Tell me what to do. Like, I feel like, everyone, but it's also again like this is the big problem. Like, is like I don't, do, I don't, I yeah, don't want you know I mean. to keep going back to my black friends being like tell me how to be a better white person like we got to get away from that too yeah so here you are two struggling white privileged people probably just exposing ourselves for being pretty unwoke i but our hearts are are pure our hearts are in the right place hopefully you just don't know though you're like god am i just like a product of generational racism the answer is yes yeah i definitely am definitely am well anyway that was the story of Emmett Till. Say his fucking name. Say his name. Say arrest the, arrest name. The, ta- the killers of Breonna Taylor. Yeah, like, let's stop saying the cops who killed Breonna Taylor and just say the no, straight but, up yeah, unfettered just say the fucking murderers. murderers. Like, like the, Breonna Taylor's the murderers. murderers that killed her in cold blood. Like, cold her, fucking blood. While she was in fucking her bed. sleeping. Let's arrest them and start there. Yeah, let's start there. I think that's a good place to end. For us to end and you to begin. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs> Please tell us we're garbage, tell us we're canceled, and most importantly, tell us how to be better allies and historians. I think think there's going to be a lot of suggestions on how to be better historians right from the I mean, truly, (laughs) we probably need that advice the most. We need any advice. Anything you can give us. We're here to listen. And we'd love to feature you, too. Like, if you are a historian or just somebody that, like, knows a singular event in history that you feel passionately about and you want to come on this podcast, we are open. We are in the age of COVID, so we are equipped for remote (laughs) recording. So you hit us up. We are ready. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to Manifest Destiny, a millennial take on the American millennium. If you enjoyed our show, please leave us a positive review on your preferred podcast platform, but only if you enjoyed it. Looking for a history fix in between episodes of Manifest Destiny? Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Manifest Destiny Pod for exclusive content and quality memes.